This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Ontario's chief medical officer made it official on Wednesday, setting March 21st, a week from tomorrow, as the day mask mandates will be removed in most indoor settings, including schools. Excluded will be public transit, long-term care, retirement homes, other congregate settings, and healthcare settings. We also learned that the next step in Ontario's reopening is tomorrow, March 14th, when mandatory COVID vaccination or test policies end for workers in schools, childcare settings, hospitals, and long-term care. And all remaining public health measures, directives, and orders will end April 27th. What do you think as we move very quickly back to normal? Soon after the announcements were made by Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, I was joined for a discussion with epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. There's a lot of uncertainty around. In fact, Jane, since the very beginning, what, two years ago, doesn't it sound amazing? Uh, this has been filled with uncertainty, uh, f- false directions, uh, you know, sudden, sudden change of direction, I mean, uh, nasty tricks played on us by the, the variant of the month. And so we can't let our guard down. This is the, uh, this is the, this is, I guess, the over, overview that we, we need to keep. Now, we received a statement uh, this morning from Dr. Peter Uni, the head of the COVID-19 science advisory table here in Ontario, and he uh, told Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, this decision on removing masking mandates is not based on science, not based on science. Your thoughts? Well... It's difficult to know exactly what goes on in the in the minds of the decision makers. I mean, I, I listen to the news much like everybody listens to your program as well. So we don't quite know what goes on in there. But just standing back from it a little bit and looking at the evidence, which is where we should all be looking, looking at the science, looking at the facts, it seems that perhaps this is a little hasty, shall we put it like that, that it's all most of it's going in the right direction those are the three indicators we use nowadays that's the icu uh, enrollment the hospitalization rates in general and the wastewater signal uh, the first two are going down uh, there are what they call a lagged indicator, so it takes uh, several weeks to, to catch up from the cases. The cases that we don't know. Nobody really has a good idea of how, how many cases there are in the community because nobody's really testing for that. But the third one there, the wastewater, that was going down quite steadily. And that's, that's where you look at the virus in sewage. And uh, it, it's in some areas of the province, it's taking a slight turn back upwards again. And this might be, and this is purely speculation, due to the new sub-variant of Omicron, the BA2. We, we don't quite know about that yet. 
So um, the indicators are moving in the right direction, but it's not not quite firmly enough to be able to say it's the end of anything. We're still in the pandemic. I think we can look on the horizon and see this endemic coming, uh, and the indicators are moving in that direction, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, I don't think these these decisions are ever uh, um, missing those particular dynamics. They're always present. I mean, as long as the human beings live in communities, we're going to see those community decisions taking place, and that's quite understandable. But let's look at the let's look at the the reasons why I think we should be uh, a, a little bit little bit uh, cautious, and that is we've got a March break coming up which is a splendid example for cross-pollination and sharing of all kinds of viruses in whether it's Fort Lauderdale or wherever it's going to be. Uh, it would be nice to see that over and done with before we made such a relaxation. I, that's from my personal point of view. Uh, we've got children under five. Uh, very, very few actually been vaccinated in that age group. Um, well, none, not, right? Nobody under five has been yeah, vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in Canada, yes. In exactly, Canada, right. yes. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. So these are these are uncertainties. We've got um, uh, it's it's only March the first, isn't it, when the last relaxation of some of the measures took in place. So we're only about eight or nine days in from that. That's barely an incubation period. I like to see the the results of each of these relaxations uh, stabilized before we move on to the next one. You know, these are sort of what you might call common sense. They're not really deep uh, scientific rocket science. They're common sense approaches that anybody could could probably rationalize. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We continued our conversations about Vladimir Putin's horrific war against Ukraine throughout the week on Fight Back. On Wednesday, while in Berlin, Canada's Prime Minister announced more support for Ukraine, another $50 million worth of military equipment to help Ukrainian forces defend themselves against Putin's Russian military. All the while, Putin's strategy was backfiring, even as civilians have been brutally killed in airstrikes. That same day, there were devastating attacks in the port city of Mariupol, where there are too many dead to accommodate individual burials. Joining me to discuss the war at that point, Dora Komiak, volunteer president of Razom, a nonprofit Ukrainian-American human rights organization, and Dr. Elliot Tepper, professor of international relations at Ottawa's Carleton University. Plan A for the... uh... Putin invasion has clearly gone off the rails, uh, kind of like a blitz, blitzkrieg and then an Anschluss. They were going to sweep in, and politically decapitate the government, uh, perhaps assassinate the leader, and then put in a puppet government, which would declare that, boy, we really are one people uh, with Russia. That didn't happen. It's not likely to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen. So the stepping up of violence is the next step. Uh, there's the plan B is to just reduce the country to rubble and, and um, pound them into submission. And we see the war crimes uh, basically right before our eyes. But your question is to will this end quickly? It doesn't look like it. Beat the nation into submission. 
Uh, Even for dictator Vladimir Putin, what is the strategy, the long-term strategy behind beating a nation into submission and killing its civilians? That wasn't the initial strategy, of course, but it's a a tried-and-true strategy for for Russia. They did it with the capital of Chechnya when there were problems there. They reduced the city, capital city, to rubble. And uh, it's tempting to say that what we are likely to hear out of Syria is, welcome to our world because this kind of behavior of attacking hospitals and other civilian targets from the air, deliberately intended to demoralize the population, was a tried-and-true tactic which has kept Assad in power as a result of the war being tipped in his favor by Russian intervention. Over to Dora Komiak of Razom. Mm -hmm. First of all, Dora, do you have family, friends in, in Ukraine? Yes, we have volunteers from day one in Ukraine and in the United States, and we work with volunteers, individuals, and organizations throughout the country. Our goal is to build a prosperous Ukraine. The way we're doing it now is different uh, because, um, to jump on what you were just talking about, the way to, the way to stop the, the shelling of civilian institutions and hospitals and and innocent people is to stop the shelling. So there's really one guy who can make that happen. I just want to make sure we don't lose sight of that, that it's, uh, you know, the the bombs are falling on my friend's apartment from the guy next door. Um, And so we have volunteers that are working now. We've been able to mobilize very quickly and get um, tactical medical supplies into the hands of people who literally need to stop the bleeding and uh, we have more on the way, and we're working with hospitals. Now, it's unfortunate that we've had to do that instead of doing the work we had been doing with culture and education and civic engagement with the immensely talented people in Ukraine. Um, that there's just, And I think that's what the world is seeing, that there's this, the talent and the innovation and the determination of people there is really something that contributes a lot of good to the whole world. And that's really what... Mr. Putin is just trying to literally blow to smithereens. This is an attack on human rights for all of us. And we're going to need to get along and we're going to need to find a way to keep, keep strengthening those institutions. And those of us who like to live in a civilized world with rule of law need to learn from people in Ukraine about how to protect those institutions and how to nurture them and how to grow them because it's not going to stop here. And so what I hope these sanctions are doing, yeah, sure, in the short term, I hope it causes the people in the Kremlin to come to their sentences, but I'm not holding my breath for that. What I do hope it does is galvanize the world community and the civilized world community, or should I say the non-crazy world community, mm-hmm. to realize, oh, hey, we need to, we need to pay attention. We need to take care of each other. We need to behave a certain way uh, that 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 protects, that respects our human rights. I hope that's what happens. Dora Komiak, volunteer president of Razom, a nonprofit Ukrainian-American human rights organization, and Dr. Elliot Tepper, professor of international relations at Ottawa's Carleton University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the federal conservative leadership race heats up. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. The federal conservative leadership race is widening as more candidates officially join in, including former Quebec Premier Jean Charest, who was also leader of the federal progressive conservative party back in the 1990s. On Wednesday, I was joined by two strategists to discuss the contest, which will end on September 10th, when a new conservative leader will be chosen. Bob Richardson is a liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. And John McEtishan is a conservative strategist and president of Bradgate Research Group. I asked them about their thoughts on the two declared candidates as of our conversation. Haldeman Norfolk MP Leslin Lewis and Ottawa area MP Pierre Poliev. There's nothing like what's next. So, you know, when you're the first guy in the race, you're the big story because you're the only guy in the race. And uh, Pierre started out as a front runner. And I think uh, um, I would actually challenge that and say yesterday uh, when Leslin declared that uh, she would be now the front runner. And I think uh, both of their statuses will start to dwindle as we start to see a lot more people enter the race in the following week. Bob, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, I think they have four serious candidates in this race, so we're likely to have them by uh, by by the next few days. Uh, I think it is a good race. I think it's good for politics. I think it's good for democracy, and I think it'll be good for Canada for the uh, Conservative Party to have a, you know a big discussion about who they are and where they're going. Uh, and then I think Canadians will will have uh, you know a good choice in the next election. Uh, Mr. Polyev is a strong candidate. He's strangely almost the establishment candidate. Uh, Leslie Lewis is there, uh, very strong with social conservatives. Uh, Patrick Brown, a moderate conservative, but I think could have strong 905 appeal, an appeal with, uh, with new Canadians. And Jean Charest, uh, a, a trusted, uh, tested brand, if I could put it this way, could be strong with moderate voters and with, uh, with Quebecers. So, you know, looking as an outsider, that's a pretty good race. And I think, uh, I think, as I said, that's good for democracy. I think it's good for Canada. John, Bob just mentioned there uh, they need to figure out who they are and where they are going. How about I ask you those questions? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, going to be the biggest discussion of what the Conservative Party stands for at its core and what its vision for the future is. It's, it's what leaderships are always about, but we've had three leaderships since the party was founded. And I think this will be uh, the most consequential debate on those issues that we've ever had. Do you think it's unclear, those two questions, about who the Conservatives are right now in 2022? Uh, I, I think so, in part because the memberships always between, for parties, memberships are always highest after an election cycle where you have uh, lots of nomination meetings or when you have a, uh, a a leadership because new people come into the party and then they dwindle down to the base or the core. Uh, and for conservatives, that means a lot of grumpy people on a good day. So uh, it's going to be quite interesting and exciting. I think the rumored number for current membership is around 170,000 people. And I think you'll see that number uh, go higher than it ever has in history. I think this is one of the great moments most people don't realize in elections. All they get to do when they go to the polls is pick the candidates that the parties pick and, pick and choose among the leaders that the parties pick. 
this is an opportunity for anybody who's interested in who the next leader of the Conservatives are to not just have an opinion, but pay $15, get a membership, and have a vote. And I think we're going to see that in this race. There are going to be people who have had memberships, uh, but haven't, you know, in the past, but haven't had it perhaps in 10 years or 15 years because they haven't been happy with the direction of the party or where it's going. The question is, how many of those are going to come home versus how many of those are just going to continue to either not vote or become liberals over the course of time? But I think if we go back to our core, you look at the highest number of votes we've gotten in this country and where we've been the last couple of elections, there's a lot of people to come home. And I think, uh, you know, I agree with Bob. This is going to be an exciting race with real choices. And uh, nobody can predict what it's going to look like on September 10th at this point. John McIntyre, conservative strategist and president of Bradgate Research Group, and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Friday was the two-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic, first declared by the World Health Organization on March 11, 2020. The pandemic has forever changed us as individuals and as a society. And of course, the losses are staggering. In Canada alone, there have been more than 37,000 COVID-related deaths, where the tragedies were felt most prominently in long-term care homes. And two years later, the vast majority of eligible Canadians have been double vaccinated against COVID, with most of those people having received a third shot booster. Fourth shots have also been given to nursing home residents and people considered immunocompromised. The pandemic is not over yet, but life is quickly going back to normal. Here in Ontario, most indoor masking mandates will be lifted a week from tomorrow. On Thursday, the day before the two-year anniversary of the pandemic, I was joined by two experts to talk about where we've been and where we're going. Dr. Barry Pecos is York Region's Medical Officer of Health, and Dr. Peter Uni is the head of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. I think it's important, you know, not to forget how we started this, we all tend to forget, you know, how uh, challenging this actually was at the beginning and how far we actually went. And we learned a tremendous amount. A, this virus is extremely capable of uh, evolving. So it's really evolution in real time that we're seeing. But we also had surprising successes, you know, with uh, with our uh, vaccines and with the treatments that are forthcoming now. And we learned how to deal with it. We now have, you know, a much refined toolbox that we can use also in the future. So we made it very far. And, you know, what really uh, pains me a bit when I uh, keep hearing people, you know, uh, just a few weeks ago, we're back to square one, it's Groundhog Day, etc. All of that is not true. We made it tremendously far. We just need to keep going. You know, the virus doesn't care whether we're tired or not. We can't pretend we're out of the pandemic yet. But we made it far and we will probably have quite a good time now during the next few months. Oh, that's nice to hear. Uh, Dr. Pecos, uh, your thoughts on the two-year anniversary? You know, I'm, I'm similarly optimistic. Uh, certainly, I remember the one-year anniversary and, and preparing for a couple of interviews at that time and, and thinking what the lessons learned were at that point. Um, and they really are very much the same as now. One of the lessons learned is we, we don't tend to learn lessons from pandemics. 
um, and, and, you know, bolstering our public health system and our health care system. Um, but I think in the past year, you know, over the second year of the pandemic, uh, certainly we have seen just this tremendous uh, evolution. And with the vaccines, we're in a very, very different place. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not enthusiastic about talking about getting back to normal, but getting back to a new normal. And I think the summer is going to be an optimistic time. I'm a little bit uh, hesitant about the fall and, and a little bit worried, but I, I'm very much looking forward to the spring and summer. Dr. Uni, Dr. Pecos brings up a good point. You know, when we were acknowledging the first anniversary, the vast majority of us had yet to receive our first COVID vaccination. So when you think about that year over year, this was the year of the vaccine. And then at the very end, uh, Omicron. Yeah, absolutely. So what we need to be aware of, you know, we the first success we had with immunity was after our first dose rollout, we crushed alpha. No, and we did that entirely just with vaccine-induced immunity. Now we are at the point where we are uh, stepwisely loosening our restrictions, and we do that based on the protection offered by vaccines on one hand, and um, infection on the other hand. You know, with ro- probably roughly four million people in Ontario having been uh, infected with Omicron since December the first. So it's the first time since the beginning of the pandemic where we just have, you know, this wall of immunity built up, crushing the virus relatively well, even though we're not out of the woods yet. Therefore, you know, the mask lifting worries me a bit right now. But we're doing that well because of a combination of vaccines and infection. That's for the first time that we're doing that. And that's, you know, a change in quality and the change of the face of the pandemic. Dr. Pecos. You know, I think it's really focusing on that kindness and consideration piece. And, you know, for many of your listeners who might be older, you know, asking nicely for, you know, people, if you might be getting into an elevator or in a particular situation you feel uncomfortable, you know, asking the person next to you, you'd feel more comfortable if they wore a mask, you know, that sort of thing. And I would hope that, that others listening who might be younger will, will, um, will just do that, will wear masks in any case, for the sake of those who might be more vulnerable. Um, You know, I think we've shown kindness and consideration and solidarity as a society. And as long as we continue doing that, we're going to continue to be in an optimistic and a good place. My conversation on Thursday with Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health, and Dr. Peter Uni, head of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat in Toronto phoned about the plan to lift most indoor mask mandates March 21st. For the unvaccinated, this is going to be going to raise the risk for them. And um, they may think this is great that people don't have to wear masks, but they should have even more caution and be very careful because if the unvaccinated get this virus, they got a good chance that they're going to die, as we've seen. So um, that's the point to be made. 
Bruce in Guelph also called about the decision to end masking in most public environments. <laughs> I think, Jane, this is way too early. You know, every time we've relaxed stuff, we've gone back. How many waves have we had now? Is it four? Is it five? I've lost count. I, 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 like, I, well, like Dr. Sai said, at least wait till two weeks after March break. I would say the end of April, because then the good weather comes. People are going to be outside, and, and it'll dissipate. And what bothers me is that, that I think this is getting more and more political now, especially with, with the, you know, the election coming up. It just bothers me that there's going to be people out there as soon as this mask mandate is lifted, and I'm going to still wear a mask, I'm, I'm telling you that, in crowded places, any time I'm out, and you're going to get, like, get these people that are you know, anti-maskers saying, why are you wearing it now? It's not, you don't have to, blah, blah, blah. I just don't get it why people need to do that. If, if you don't I want know, to wear a let's mask... live and let live, right? Live and let exactly, live. Exactly. Yeah. Bill in Toronto phoned about the federal conservative leadership race. Well, you know, I just like Pierre Polyev. He, his economics and his sensibilities are exactly what this country needs right now. Leslie Lewis has got the absolute great features. Maybe not her type. She will be the leader of this party, and Polyev's going to take it. Leslie Lewis, this time, I hope that the Conservative Party actually honors her and gives her a position of importance and respects what she brings to the table. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Dennis in Brampton, who phoned about how the pandemic has changed him as an individual. I think it boils down to each of us has to take on our own uh, comfort level with what degree of risk we're willing to take. I'm 76 years of age, and I, for one, am going back uh, to my life the way that it was. Uh, that will also include uh, going back and volunteering at an urgent care center where I've been furloughed for the last two years because of COVID. I just feel that, uh, for me at least, uh, you know, time is going by each day. Uh, you know, we see world events. We don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow, six months from now, or a year. So I'm looking forward to, to going back and I've been to restaurants. I will, however, wear my N95 mask on a consistent basis. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.